Well, it is uh, great to be <clears throat> back this morning. It's been, uh, well, I last uh, taught or preached here on Wednesday the 15th, and so I think that's 18 days if I'm doing the math right. And, you know, I got to thinking in, in 32 years now of ministry, I, 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 it seems like there had to have been another time similar to that, but I can't think of another time when I've gone 18 days without speaking. <clears throat> I mean, normally I'm four or five, especially when I was in academics, six, seven times a week speaking. And uh, now I did do one interview about halfway through in the midst of this uh, sickness, and that about killed me, about put me over the edge. But uh, that was with Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo, which we do once a month, and I hated to miss that. But um, yeah, it's uh, it was a weird feeling. And, um, you know, uh, it's just, it's almost surreal uh, to think of, uh, of being out of the pulpit for that long. So I missed the two Sundays, two Wednesdays, and Christmas Eve. Thank you for stepping up for two of those, I think, right, and filling in. And I heard just great things as the Lord used Jeff, uh, as we would have had every expectation uh, to just really speak to the body. But uh, missed two Sundays, two Wednesdays, and Christmas Eve. And so by my, <coughs> excuse me, by my calculations, I've got about two hours and 15 minutes that I'm owed for preaching this morning. So uh, I think I should be able to fit in our introduction to Acts in that, <clears throat> in that amount of time. But um, I got to thinking about really where we are in our world today. And uh, obviously our local church, and we're going to talk about this in the coming weeks, is a subset of the universal church, the body of Christ globally. And so we fit into this world in a, in a small way here locally. But with everything going on in our world, I thought this is really a good time, it seems to me, <clears throat> to go back to the beginning and see wh what we're supposed to be all about. You know, uh, hu human history is biblical history, and human history is God's history. And God is at work in the world, uh, 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 fulfilling His plan making, uh, you know, moving us forward ultimately towards the kingdom someday when he comes back to make all things new. And uh, the Bible thus tells the story of human history that comes full circle from creation to fall to redemption and to recreation in sinless perfection. And so uh, the church is a key part uh, of God's plan of the ages. It is one of God's divine institutions and this morning, we're going to introduce this uh, idea of the church and how it fits into God's plan of the ages and what is the church really and what makes the church the church is what we're calling this message. But we're going to do that by uh, going back to the beginning in Acts chapter 1. But before we do that, as I was thinking about this message, I was thinking about another passage in Isaiah uh, chapter 51. Now, I had planned to spend quite a bit of time in Isaiah. Two messages that we missed were going to be from Isaiah, which obviously is a great prophet of old, 700 years before Christ. Uh, there's a lot in Isaiah about both the first advent of Christ at, at Bethlehem, as well as uh, obviously his return and the establishment of uh, the kingdom. Uh, but I didn't get to providentially. Uh, and so uh, it's been on my mind, and I thought about Isaiah chapter 51, verse 1, where Isaiah the prophet, speaking on behalf of Yahweh, the Creator God, reminded the nation of Judah in a time of difficulty, a time of uh, distress, a low point for their nation, to look back through their history on God's hand of protection and blessing in their life. And he makes this famous statement, Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. Now, that's a metaphor. We're going to talk about that in our Wednesday night study. Uh, but it's a pretty easy one to get your hands around, isn't, isn't it? Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. In other words, remember where you've been. Remember the numbers of times that I have protected you. I have rescued you. I have helped you from uh, escape the enemy's snare. Look at my testimony of faithfulness as you look forward to whatever may be coming down the pike. Remember where you've been. And so that's what we're going to be doing in this series, is going back 2,000 years 
to the establishment of the church. Now, necessarily, that involves looking at the church through human history, but more importantly, we want to look at it through God's eyes and understand that the church is a divinely instituted, divinely created organism that is center stage right now on planet Earth, intending to do God's will and do God's bidding and advance the message of grace right now. So as we look around us today, uh, the church, at least in my mind, uh, and I'm somewhat of a critic of the church because that's my world, that's my field, right? A pastor, a teacher. Uh, but I don't think the, the church resembles anything like what it did when it was founded. Um, you know, we sung, uh, or I guess the scripture reading that Jeff chose for today was uh, connected to the resurrection. In a few months, we'll be celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. But that was a great verse because, um, you know, Christ arose, and then what? Right? What, what happened next? I mean, we, we, we all know bits and pieces, uh, just to greater and lesser degrees, about the life and ministry of Christ. We read all about it in the Gospels. We understand the interactions that he had with the Jewish leaders. We understand the, uh, those pivotal moments and poignant moments that he had with the tax collectors and the harlots and the woman at the well. We understand how he healed the sick and how he uh, was such a great testimony and, and light to uh, the ultimate glory of God being manifested through him. We understand that for three and a half years. We read all about it. Of course, we understand that he laid down his life for the sins of the world, that he paid your sin debt and my sin debt when he went to the cross on our behalf, in our place, as our substitute. And then, of course, we understand he rose again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave. Then what? Then what? Well, that's what the book of Acts tells us. It tells us how we got from there to here. It tells us how God's plan began to unfold after the great victory that was won uh, at the cross. Um, so what has happened in these you know, intervening 2,000 years since then? We've got religions, denominations, movements, cults, traditions, institutions. But how did we get from the resurrection to the church? And how did we get from the founding of the church, which we're going to look at in the coming weeks, to today? The year now 2022, Western American culture, more specifically, a, a southern suburb of Denver, Colorado in the United States of America. What makes the church the church according to the Bible. Now, this is the first message in a series that we're going to do through the book of Acts, probably take us the better part of this year. And anytime I start a new series, I, I think it's worth taking at least five minutes or so to put it in historical context, to give you some background, to help set the stage for what is to come. So let's, let's put this in historical background. The crucifixion, uh, by all accounts, occurred on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D., uh, the resurrection was on the third day, Sunday, April 5th, 33 AD. Now, whenever I mention this, often people will come up to me or they'll email me and say, now, doesn't the Bible say three days and three nights? So how could, how could that fit with that? Well, remember, the Bible wasn't written in English. The Bible was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, the New Testament. And in the Hebrew culture, the phrase three days and three nights means any part of a day and any part of a night. And so it doesn't, we don't use it that way. When we say three days and three nights, we think 72 hours, right? If you're paying, you know, $1,000 for a seven-day, seven-night cruise, you're doing the math, and you better come up with, well, whatever seven times 24 is, Jeff. Uh, but in, in Hebrew, it doesn't work that way. And I, I uh, often will put out an article that I wrote years ago kind of demonstrating that from Scripture, showing how many times the phrase is used when it unambiguously doesn't mean 72 hours. And so don't be hung up about that. A lot of people uh, have come up with some bad theories based on an English translation and interpreting it through English culture. We need to use Bible words with biblical culture. So he was in the grave early on the morning Friday. He was there all day Saturday, and he was there part of Sunday, three days. Uh, he rose again Sunday, April 5th. Then for 40 days, according to Scripture, 
He appeared to many people. He was seen by Peter and the Twelve. He was seen at one point by over 500 brethren at one time. Um, <clears throat> and uh, this is from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul tells us that by the time Paul was writing 1 Corinthians, which was 23 years later in 56 A.D., he says, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Now, some have died, but many are still alive. By the time Paul, midway through the book of Acts, he wrote 1 Corinthians in his third missionary journey, so actually two-thirds of the way through the book of Acts, uh, many of the people who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead were still alive. Uh, and then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Remember, Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus after he had risen from the dead, of course. Uh, and there are many others, the disciples on the road to Emmaus and, and so forth. But for 40 days, he appeared to literally thousands of people. And then on May 14th, uh, 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. That's where we're going to pick up the story in a moment in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1. Uh, but then 10 days later, on the day of Pentecost, the church was founded. Now that's not speculation. I can prove that unequivocally, and I will in a moment, that the church began on the day of Pentecost, May 24th, 33 AD. So that gives you a little context historically surrounding the resurrection that we read about a moment ago and the, the up to the, the ascension and ultimately the establishment of the church, which is still in force uh, today. But let me then look at it from a human perspective, because we think of the church and, and all of these terms <clears throat> kind of bounce around in our mind, Roman Catholicism, Anglican, this and that. Where does all this fit? So let me kind of give you a quick overview of church history. And again, I'm doing this to capture it for the video. I don't expect you to write this down, but as we go through this series in the months to come, if you ever want to go back and watch this, you can go back and kind of fast forward to this portion and kind of put it in perspective again. But the apostolic age uh, is from roughly 33 to 96. The book of Revelation was written in 96, 95 or 96 AD, somewhere right around there. And that ended essentially the apostolic age, those who walked and talked with Christ. Um, by the time you get into the second century AD, those who had walked and talked with Christ were dying off. And uh, you get into the early days of uh, church history. We call the, the period from roughly 96 to 325 the anti-Nicene age. Anti meaning before. Uh, you know, it's Latin anti like uh, if you play poker which I would never do. No, just kidding. Uh, uh, what happens in our dining room stays in our dining room. But anyway, uh, 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 ante, you, you ante up before, hand, you, before the hand is played, you put in your ante, whether that's 25 cents or if you're a big professional poker player, it might be $500. I don't know. So ante before the Nicene Creed or the, Nicene, the Council of Nicaea which was in 325 A.D. So we call that period the Anti-Nicene Age. A lot of our early church fathers uh, that we read about were uh, you know, active during that time. And then you get to the rise of Roman Christianity up to 590 A.D. and Pope, the, Pope Gregory the Great, Pope Gregory I, but they call him Gregory the Great, who began his papacy in 590. And then really for the rest of the time up until the Reformation, it was the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, the time when... Roman Catholicism ruled the world and was almost synonymous with Christianity. Of course, if you know anything about Roman Catholicism and its roots, and especially what's going on today in the Vatican, you know it has very little to do with Christianity. No offense to our, Christ, to our Catholic friends who may be listening or watching uh, this video, uh, but you need to check that out. You need to do your research and understand uh, the politics behind Roman Catholicism for uh, a thousand years, really. And then, uh, of course, Martin Luther in 1517 nailed his theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church and thus began uh, the Reformation. And uh, you had the Reformation age until roughly 1648. And then he got into the age of reason when science and reason began to compete with faith as the, the foundation of truth. And if you couldn't see it, feel it, touch it, smell it, taste it, 
it didn't exist. So I guess if you had COVID, it mostly didn't exist, right? Uh, <clears throat> thankfully, I only lost my sense of smell for a short period of time. I never lost my sense of taste. Uh, but uh, my wife did lose both her sense of smell and taste, and as did many of, of you. But uh, the age of reason, up until 1789, roughly the start of the French Revolution, the storming of the Bastille. And then you got into the age of revivalism, and this was all those great revivalists, uh, both in Europe and in the New World, uh, who began to preach not always a clear gospel or an accurate gospel, but at least a passion for God and His Word and for people to turn to God. Uh, we call that the age of revivalism. And then that brings us to today and the present age, which I call the age of division and the remnant. And in the early part of the 20th century, at least in America, the church began to split time and time again as modernism, going back to that age of reason and intellectualism, modernism, and the rise of higher criticism when it comes to the Bible began to creep in around the turn of the 20th century. And so entire denominations began to go liberal. They began to deny things like literal creationism, a global flood, Jonah and the whale or the big fish, uh, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ. They, anything that couldn't be uh, supported by what they call science was rejected. And so essentially the Bible just began to be ripped apart page by page and so in that time, the remnant would always split off and hold firm. It was called, uh, back in the first part of the 20th century, it was called the modernism versus fundamentalism movement, right? And those who held to the inerrancy of Scripture as our only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices would, would split off when their denominational leaders would go liberal. And so that's the reason... You know, you ended up with 25, 27, I, I can't remember the total number of Baptist denominations. There used to be one until slavery, and then there were two, until I mean, until the after slavery, or the whole slavery issue. And then uh, now they keep splitting off, because when, when the church locally denies the truth of God's word, the remnant splits off. So it was the age, we were living in the age of division and the remnant. And I tell you what, the reason that's important is because as we get closer and closer to the return of our Lord, that remnant's going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. If you remember when David Fiorazzo was here, somebody asked the question, you know, what percentage of the church today do you think is really holding firm to the Word of God as the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices? And I think he said something like 25%, and I said 5%. And uh, whatever that number is, we're just dead reckoning, it's not very large. Most of the church has long ago become just a social club that doesn't really look to the Word of God as our only standard. Um, so then we come to the book of Acts. So we're going to pick up our, our journey this morning with Acts uh, chapter 1. Obviously Luke, as you may know, is the author of the book of Acts, and it really is part two of his two-volume work. <coughs> Excuse me. So, in fact... I've, I've spent so much time studying Luke through the years that very often when I'm going to find Luke, even though I know the books of the Bible, you know, frontwards and backwards, I'll, I'll go to Luke and I'll go the next book thinking I'm, that's Acts. And then I'll go, wait, that's John. What am I thinking? Acts is one more over. But in my mind, they really go together, Luke and Acts. In fact, Luke and Acts, both written by Luke, comprise the largest portion of the New Testament. So Luke, not Paul, Luke is the most prolific writer in the New Testament because Luke, the gospel, and Acts, the historical account after the gospels, together are larger than all 13 of Paul's epistles, right? So Acts is really Luke part two, obviously written by Luke. He wrote it around 60 to 62 AD, and it of course explains the birth, as we're going to see, and the expansion of the church. It covers a time period from 33 A.D., remember the ascension, May, 20, or May 14th, 33 A.D., to 62 A.D., and leaves us with Paul imprisoned in Rome. So it's a historical account covering some 30 years of the church as it began and, and expanded. So what makes the church the church? I just want to walk through the first 11 verses of chapter 1 and point out some things that really haven't changed in 2,000 years. 
And if we're not doing these things, we cannot rightly be called the church. No church can. First of all, the church is the church when it continues the ministry of Christ. Uh, that's fundamental. Remember in verse 1, Luke says, The former account I made, O Theophilus. Now we don't know a lot about Theophilus, but Luke is addressing his work to this man. But obviously it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as all of Scripture was, and it's for the benefit of the church at large. But he refers at the outset of Acts to his part one, his first volume. Uh, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So he starts out his, his, this book of Acts by reminding us that this is just a continuation of the ministry of Christ. And if you think back to Christ the, the very night that he was betrayed in the garden, and he had that intimate moment with the disciples in the upper room, which we probably, which we think was most likely John Mark's mother's house and above it on the roof where they would meet. And in that moment, Jesus prepares the disciples for his departure, promises to come again and meet them in the air, by the way, which is the earliest reference to the rapture in all of the Bible. But he also reminds them that they've got a job to do while he's gone, and that the Holy Spirit's going to take on a new ministry in their lives and indeed the lives of all believers, the Comforter, that he's going to lead and guide them. He reminds them in that intimate discussion in the upper room around the table that they are to stay close to him and abide in him even after he's gone through the Holy Spirit so that they can bear much fruit, so that they can be his disciples truly. It's pretty easy to be Jesus' disciple when he's there because the word disciple just means follower. And if Jesus is there and you're following him and when he stops under a tree to do some teaching, you stop. When he beds down for the night, you bed down in that village. Wherever he is, you're there. That's pretty easy to be his disciple. But Jesus was reminding them that it's going to become much more difficult to be my disciple when I'm not here in bodily form. And you're going to have to follow the Spirit. You're going to have to walk in the Spirit. Paul would later describe it as walking by faith and not by sight. That's the reason I love that song that we sang. And you're spot on. That is the essence of spiritual warfare. I mean, prayer, obviously Ephesians 6 ends in verse 18 with a call to praying always with all prayer and supplication. But what is prayer? Prayer is faith. Trusting God, who you cannot see, to intervene on your behalf. To protect, to provide, to lead, to guide. So faith really is the victory in this spiritual warfare. And it's very interesting that if you, if you look at the word disciple, which means follower... And we use that term today in a variety of contexts. It's not just in the Christian context. But, you know, if you say a, 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 you know, a basketball coach, uh, what's his style? What's his paradigm for coaching? And someone might say, well, he's a disciple of John Wooden. Well, that just means he follows his principles and teachings and methodologies, right? Um, so disciple just means follower. But in Jesus' day... In the Jewish culture of the first century, it meant to physically follow in close proximity to the master, to the rabbi. And so <clears throat> it's interesting, the word, the verb follow, which is the word akalutheo in, in uh, Greek, it means to follow. If you, if you do a word study on that in the entire New Testament, you find that after the ascension of Christ, which we're getting to here in a moment in Acts 1, that verb is never used anywhere in the New Testament of a believer or person following another person until you get all the way to Revelation 19 when the church is following Christ on white horses coming back. That's where it's used. Why? Because today in the present age, we can't physically follow Jesus in bodily form. We have to do things like Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You know, I saw him, I was with him, but he's not here, so you have to imitate me as an apostle. We have to walk by faith, not by sight. You also find that the word disciple is not used in the epistles. Uh, remember in Acts, we're going to get there in several weeks, several months down the road, but it says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, the church in Antioch. And after that, that became the name. Because it just didn't make sense to call them disciples when 
Most of them in the church by that time had never even seen Jesus in bodily form. So uh, that doesn't mean it's wrong for us to use the term disciples, meaning a follower of Christ. We just need to understand that words change their meaning over time. And today the word disciple means someone who follows the teachings of another or the principles of another. So we are disciples, but we, we didn't have the privilege of physically walking and talking with him on earth. So the church is the church when it continues the ministry of Christ. Secondly, the church is the church when it obeys the mandates of Christ. Look at verse 2 in Acts chapter 1. Not only did Luke say, you know, this is the continuation of what I started out about Jesus and what he taught and did, but he, he says, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles, whom he had chosen. So can you think of some of the commandments that Jesus gave near the end of his life and ministry on earth that are intended to be normative uh, for us today? Well, I can think of a few. In the short term, Jesus told the disciples, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Right? Which, of course, they did. But obviously the one that should come to all of our minds is the Great Commission which was given during those 40 days after the resurrection, where he says, go therefore and make disciples. In Greek, the phrase make disciples is a command. It's imperative mood. It means it's a command. We often in English think of the command here as go, go therefore. And you'll hear a lot of sermons preached about, oh, he commanded us to go. Well, he didn't really command us to go. He commanded us to make disciples. And then in this great commission... There are three participles, not to get too much down in the weeds, but you know, participle in English typically has an ing on the end, right? It's a verbal noun. And in, uh, this is an English translation of the original Greek, and the word go is actually a participle. And a, probably a better translation would be going, or as you're going, or as you go, make disciples. So make disciples is the command, and then the three participles tell us how to do that. How are we, as we await Christ's return in this now 2,000-year-long age of the church, to make others into followers of Christ? Well, first of all, by going. As we go, wherever, wherever we go. doesn't mean you've got to pack up and head to Africa. As you go to the grocery store, as you go to the you know, gas station, as you go to Walmart... I don't know why anybody would go to Walmart, but let's say you did. Uh, as you go, wherever you go, tell others about Jesus. Baptizing them, that's another participle. And in this case, they translated it with an ING. And once people trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, they are to be baptized as an outward expression of that fact. It's not something that will keep you out of heaven if you don't do it. It's not, a, it's not salvific in any sense. It doesn't impart eternal life. But it is part of being a disciple is to be baptized and then teaching them so how do you fulfill this mandate of christ to make disciples by going baptizing and teaching that's what the great commission tells us so the church is the church when it continues the ministry of christ when it obeys the mandates of christ but also when it proclaims the miracle of christ's resurrection notice what luke says in his introduction here in verse 3 to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So Luke sets the example here, doesn't he? By proclaiming the miracle of Christ's resurrection. Don't forget, he says, this Christ clearly is alive. And there are many infallible proofs to validate that. Later, Paul would put it this way. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and our faith is also empty. As we think about walking by faith and not by sight in this present age, when there's no plan B for God, by the way. If the church isn't doing its job, there's no plan B. We can't count on the united way or goodwill or the Salvation Army especially, to do what God wants and expects the church to do. 
Uh, and so as we do what God has mandated that we do, we do it by faith. And if, if, if there is no resurrection, and we're not proclaiming the miracle of Christ's resurrection, then what's our faith in? Then we become no different than any other world religion, worshiping a dead statue or, an imp, or, or a, a, a tombstone and a grave with a body still in it, right? But Paul says, if Christ is not risen, which of course he is, but if he weren't, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. In fact, he goes on to say, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile because you're still in your sins. See, Christ defeated death, hell, and the grave when he paid our penalty for sins. And therefore, we can, by faith, receive from him the gift of life. He purchased life when he overcame death, right? He's the only one that could do that. I couldn't pay for your sins, and you couldn't pay for mine, because we have our own sins weighing us down. But Christ was the perfect God-man who never sinned, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, took our sins upon him, and defeated, paid the penalty, defeated death when he rose again, and therefore, with that purchase... That redemption, he purchased life and he offers it to you because everybody is born dead in their trespasses and sins. Everybody needs a savior. Now, he doesn't force it upon you. You have free choice if you want to receive the free gift of eternal life by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for your sins. You can be born again just like that in the moment faith meets the gospel. When faith meets the gospel, the result is eternal life every time. But if you reject the gospel, and you choose not to believe, not to receive the gift, it's not going to be thrust upon you. Forced love is no love at all. Whosoever will may come. Uh, sadly, many people die in unbelief. Jesus said in John that if you do not believe in me, you'll die in your sins, but you don't have to. That's the key. So the church is only the church when it's proclaiming the miracle of Christ's resurrection. And yet, today, all across the world, especially in Europe, but more and more so in our own country. There are churches who so call themselves churches who deny the resurrection, if you can imagine such a thing. I don't think they have the right to be called a church. I mean, certainly not biblically. I mean, in a free country, they can call themselves whatever they want, but not according to God's word. That's not a church, because you're not a church if you're not proclaiming the miracle of Christ's resurrection. But then number four, the church is the church when it yields to the mighty spirit of Christ. And here's where we begin to see the church be, really take shape. Um, next week, we're going to look in more detail at the role of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. Uh, but notice what uh, Luke says in verses 4 and 5. First, he says, Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Well, when had they heard that from him? In the upper room, when he promised that the Holy Spirit would take on a new ministry. Now remember, the Holy Spirit didn't come into existence in the beginning of the church. The Holy Spirit is God. God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit took on a new ministry according to God's divine plan. So Jesus says, wait for the promise. Uh, he said this in John 14, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Back to Acts 1, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now this is critical. This is critical, this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is what forms the church. What does that mean? What does baptism mean? Well, the first thing we need to understand is that baptism is not a uniquely Christian rite, R-I-T-E, right? it's not, or tradition, we'll say. Baptism goes back to the ancient times. Uh, and a baptism is simply a cultural tradition that identifies you with something. So, for example, in the days of Israel, in the days of Moses, Moses' baptism identified people with his teachings. Uh, proselyte baptism in Judaism identified a Gentile with Judaism. John the Baptist baptism identified his followers with him. You were saying, yes, okay, I identify with what you're saying, John the Baptist. Had nothing to do with eternal salvation, by the way. 
Then you have Christian baptism, water baptism, which uh, we read more about later on in Acts, and Paul talks about it, which simply identifies you with the body of Christ, the, the church, right? You're basically saying, I have trusted in Christ, and I'm one of you now. It doesn't save you. It's just a symbolic outward expression of an inward experience, right? Make sense? Spirit baptism is something altogether different, but it still identifies you with something. Spirit baptism identifies you with Christ himself. And that happens at the moment of faith. This was a new, unique ministry of the Holy Spirit that had never before happened on planet Earth. Old Testament believers were not baptized by the Spirit. So there had to be a beginning. And, and the beginning was what formed the church. And then from that point on, anybody who placed their faith in Christ instantly was baptized into the body of Christ, into the church. Now, how do we know that this forms the church? Well, let me walk you through it real quickly. First of all, we can start back in late in Christ's ministry when in Matthew 16, he told the disciples, particularly Peter, that I will build my church future tense. So we know at that point, at least, the church did not exist. Church is never mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, you don't find the church mentioned in the, in the time of Christ, except when he speaks of it in the future tense. It's not in existence yet, but I'm going to build it. Then in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, which we just read, a baptism is promised. In Acts chapter 2, that baptism occurs. We're going to get to that next week. Well, in Acts chapter 11, Peter looks back at the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and calls it a beginning. A beginning of what? That has no context, no meaning, unless there's historical meaning. And he says, no, that the baptism that occurred on the day of Pentecost, uniting us with Christ, was the beginning. The beginning of what? Well, let's look a little further. In Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 12, he tells us that that baptism forms a body. And then he tells us that that body in Ephesians is called the church. So here you go. Just logically walk through it. We know that the church wasn't existent late in Christ's ministry. Then we know Jesus promises a baptism. We know that that baptism occurs and it's called the beginning. We know that it also forms a body which is called the church. Ergo, the church began on the day of Pentecost. All right? Enough weeds for now, but I just I feel like that's important because we're talking about the church which Jesus Christ loves and is part of God's plan. And we need to understand what a central role it plays in God's plan of the ages. So back to uh, our text. We'll skip ahead to verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the church is doing its job. The church is the church when it yields to the mighty Spirit of Christ. In Ephesians, Paul would later say, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean to be filled with the Spirit? You know, again, you look at these English translations and you, you sort of picture, at least I did for years, this idea of sort of opening the lid of my head and pouring in some Spirit and I get this much, this, and eventually I'm filled up with the Spirit, right? That, that's kind of what we picture. That's not what this means. Um, the preposition with, as it can in English, in Greek, can have different usages, Right? So in English, just to give you an example, let's say if I told Landry, I'd like you to go uh, grab that bucket and fill the bucket with water, with water. I'm using with to speak of content, what I want you to put in the bucket, right? But I might also say, Landry, take this bucket and go fill it with a hose. Same preposition, with. But now I'm using with in the sense of the means, how I want you to fill the bucket. Use the water hose to fill the bucket. One is content, one is means. In Greek, you can tell the difference, and here he's talking about uh, means. The Spirit is the one doing the filling. The Spirit isn't the content. It's not like we can, be, we can have 60% of the Spirit or 75% of the Spirit or 90% of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one doing the filling. What does that mean? control as the analogy makes clear when you have wine it can be controlling it can make you drunk and control you so that you're no longer in control of your faculties he said don't be drunk with wine instead let the spirit control you let the spirit be the one filling you walk in the spirit and that is really the ultimate day-by-day -day task of every christian in the present age is to say holy spirit lead me guide me Fill me, 
What does that mean? Control me. You're filling, the Spirit is the one doing the filling. He's controlling us, right? So uh, we need to yield to the mighty Spirit of Christ. That's the reason Paul would later say, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Why? Because the Spirit's controlling you. When you quench the Spirit, as the Bible talks about, then you're letting the flesh control you. Anger, bitterness, fear, discouragement, lust, whatever it might be. But the Spirit, if you let Him control you, then it produces the fruit of the Spirit. Number five, the church is the church. Not only when it continues the ministry of Christ, obeys the mandates of Christ, proclaims the miracle of the resurrection, yields to the mighty Spirit of Christ, but also when it anticipates the messianic kingdom of Christ. Don't miss this because this is the part where most churches drop the ball. They may hang on to the inerrancy of Scripture. They may proclaim the resurrection. They may make Christ central to what they're doing. They may even be fulfilling the Great Commission. But so many churches today have missed this point. Jesus says on the Mount of Ascension uh, that he's going to come again. The disciples come to him and they say, Lord, okay, is, this, is it now time? Are you ready to restore the kingdom? Is, are we finally going to usher in this long-awaited kingdom that the Old Testament prophets talked about again and again? And Jesus did not rebuke them. He did not uh, mock them. He did not say, you silly disciples, haven't you figured it out yet? There's not going to be an earthly kingdom. I'm just going to reign spiritually in your hearts, you know. Haven't you read John Piper? I mean, come on. He didn't, he didn't say that. He, he affirmed the reality of a literal earthly kingdom. He just said, it's not for you to know the times, that's the Greek word chronos, meaning the duration, or the seasons, the exact date, the, the kairos, the, the, the exact date. So knowing this, the disciples rushed right after the ascension, and we're not going to dive into that section next week because it's pretty perfunctory, but they rushed right back to Jerusalem in Acts 1 verse 12, and what's the first order of business? They cast lots to replace Matthias, that 12th, to replace Judas rather with Matthias. Remember Judas proved himself to not be a believer, and we know that from John's gospel. And so there were only 11 disciples. Well, the disciples knew he was coming back. He told them he was coming back. He said, I'm not going to tell you how long that's going to be or when the exact date will be, but I'm coming back. And he had, the disciples knew that during his ministry, Jesus had promised them that they would sit on 12 thrones with him in the kingdom, literally, on earth. Remember, one of the disciples' moms was asking, can my son sit on your right and your left? And Peter was always asking, who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus had said, you're going to sit on 12 thrones with me. So it's my speculation that the disciples, knowing that Jesus was going to come back and thinking it was going to happen soon, they had no idea it was going to be 2,000 years or longer. They rushed back to Jerusalem. The first order of business is to make sure that 12 thrones not going to be empty. So they cast lots, chose Matthias, now they're ready. So they didn't understand how this plan was going to play out. They didn't understand that the, God was going to do a new work, the church, and that it was going to be started in just 10 days later. Uh, but the, the church is only the church when it anticipates the messianic kingdom of Christ. Remember, the, the passage we love so much around Christmas time is not just a first advent promise, it's a second advent promise. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Well, what about the rest of that verse? <clears throat> The government will be upon his shoulder. Has that happened yet? I don't think so. If the government were upon the shoulders of the eternal God, the Son, Jesus Christ, we wouldn't need sheriffs. You know why? Because Jesus would judge with perfection. Talk about a perfect justice system. And as great as our criminal justice system is in America, it's by no means perfect, right? Sometimes the innocent are found guilty, and sometimes the guilty get off scot-free. But by no means the government is the government upon his shoulders. Isaiah goes on to say, Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, an order and establishment it with justice and judgment from that time forward, even forever. Is Christ on the throne yet today? Absolutely not. 
So the church needs to continue to anticipate the messianic kingdom of Christ. Number six, the church is the church when it spreads the message of Christ. Back to verse eight, which we looked at a moment ago. He says, you shall be my witnesses. You shall be witnesses unto me. I mean, if there's one thing, these are all important parts of the church. If there's one thing that rises to the surface, it's we are to spread the message of Christ. It's only in Christ that our sins can be forgiven. It's only in Christ that we have any hope of eternal life. And so Jesus says, you're going to receive power. The church is going to be founded. He doesn't say that, but I just showed you how that's what happened on Acts, in Acts chapter 2. And after that happens, Jesus says, be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's what we're doing. That's what every church should be trying to do. Uh, we have many ministries here locally uh, as, as a church, Plum Creek Chapel in the Sedalia area and, and Denver area and beyond. We have a church plant that we're supporting in Colorado Springs. Uh, we support missionaries in Peru. Uh, we're contemplating another church plant. Uh, we're trying to follow this model that Jesus gave just before he ascended to the right hand of the throne uh, of God. And then finally, the church is the church when it expects the manifestation of Christ. He's going to come back. So Luke, the narrator here, the historian, tells us in verse 9, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Where is he? He's at the right hand of the throne of God, the throne in waiting. It's not the Davidic throne. It's not the kingdom throne. It's not the one that's in the rebuilt temple that Ezekiel talks about. It's a throne in waiting. And at some point in the future, known only to God, God's going to say, go get him. And he's going to come back and get the church and we're going to meet him in the air. Right? Uh, and then Luke goes on to say, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, you got to get the picture. Here's the disciples, the 11, standing around looking. Haven't connected all the dots yet. They know he's going to come back. They never once wavered. That's why if you read in the book, early book of Acts, chapter 2 and 3, they're always expecting his return imminently. But then two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner. That's why every word is so critical in uh, scripture. If you go back uh, to verse 9, while they watched. Remember that? Luke wanted us to know that they saw everything that happened as he went up before them because later God was going to reveal to them this same Jesus is going to come back in like manner. Physically, bodily, you're going to see him coming in the clouds just like you saw him go to the clouds. Paul talks about this uh, later in 1 Thessalonians 4. And we see it in many other uh, places. So uh, he's coming back. And the church is the church when it expects the manifestation of Christ. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior. Philippians 3.20. Titus 2.13 calls it the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there it is. At least seven observations from the first 11 verses of Acts that remind us of where it all began and what the church is supposed to be doing. Obviously, we are just a continuation of the ministry of Christ. We are the hands and feet of Christ, as it has often been said. We're supposed to obey what he told us to do. We're supposed to obey everything in the written word of God as well, but we're also supposed to obey the written incarnate word. We're supposed to proclaim his resurrection. We're supposed to yield to the spirit who is the one who's leading and guiding us today. We're supposed to anticipate that messianic kingdom when all things will be made new someday. We're supposed to spread the message and the gospel of Christ. And we're supposed to look forward to his return. So here's the takeaway. Remember where it all started. That is so hard to do 2,000 years later. You think of all that's happened in 2,000 years. We get so consumed with the last two years, right? And what a two years it's been. I mean, world changing. But think about 2,000 years and all that's happened since 
the events we just talked about, the ascension of Christ. But remember where it all started. Go back to the rock from which we are hewn. Remember who's in charge. This is Christ's church, right? And if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, faithfully following the word, he's going to bless. And I've never been prouder of our church than I was in these last you know, 18 days or more when uh, one by one people in our body kept falling. I mean, it was, we had our own little pandemic. I mean, two-thirds of the board was struck. People traveling. It was not fun. And yet our church came together and was a model of what it means to be one body coming together. And it's Christ's church. He's the head of it. And remember what lies ahead. You know, that's why we like to talk about prophecy at Plum Creek Chapel, because we believe it's part of the inspired word of God and we're to teach the whole counsel of God. And it keeps us looking up. You know, Paul said, if in this life only I have hope, I am of all men most pitiable. Well, don't pity us because we believe Christ is coming back. And that's our hope. That's why we get out of bed in the morning. Don't get out of bed in the morning because I look forward to shoveling snow or, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. That's just part of life. Like the song we sang, day by day, we're just abiding life. And there's joy in the journey. There's joy in the day. We're supposed to rejoice and be glad, right? But that's not what motivates us. It certainly shouldn't be. What motivates you is what lies ahead. Let's bow together as we close. Father, thank you again for uh, your word and just for the, just the foundational truths that we see in the beginning of the book of Acts. We pray for wisdom and understanding as we go through uh, this book in the weeks to come and learn more and more about your precious church. Lord, we pray if there's one here today that doesn't know you, as they've heard the gospel this morning in the message, I pray that they would place their faith in Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, for eternal life. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.